being a father has never been harder. No generation of fathers has faced more obstacles or greater obstacles to being successful fathers. While being a father has never been more difficult, being a successful father, as a father I'm speaking now, has been no more desirable than now. You men who are fathers, join me in looking into the Word of God. And if you're a prospective father or you know someone who is a father, you can glean some information from God's Word which will empower you to be the kind of man God created you to be in the role of father. Turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If we're going to be successful fathers, by all means, we must apply God's principles for successful fathering. And the Apostle Paul, as far as we know, did not have any biological children. He had many spiritual children, and he loved them dearly. He exercised his fatherliness in relationship to them on the most basic and important level of spirituality. And we can follow his example and the things that he teaches us by the power of the Spirit through 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to begin with verse 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 to get the context. We're going to concentrate primarily on verses 11 through 21 for deriving these principles that are essential for our being men who are successful fathers. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, reading from the English Standard Version, reads this way. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now let's pause just a moment. If you don't know, let me inform you that the believers, at least a large number of those believers who made up the Corinthian church, were bothered by what we might call the smart mouth. They were sassy toward their spiritual father. They had made comments about him such as that he's a fool, he is weak, he is a man who is dishonored. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10.10, Paul reveals that they were repulsed by his physical appearance and they said he is a very poor speaker. And nothing would have wounded a preacher quite like that to hear that second thing. These people who had come to know Christ through the ministry, Paul, wow, they were pretty sassy people. Verse 9 says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak. But you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. Let's stop right there. Let's just dive in and look at the first principle of successful parenting from God's point of view. In order for me or for you to be successful fathers, what we must be willing to do is make sacrifices for our children. In the case of the Apostle Paul, he speaks of it in verse 11. He was one who did not eat as he could have eaten. 
He did not dress as he could have dressed. He was homeless at times because he was making sacrifice for his spiritual children. Men, a part of our responsibility as parents, as fathers of our sons and our daughters, our job is to make necessary sacrifices to meet the needs in their lives. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible says, Whoever does not care for his relatives, and especially for those in his immediate family, have denied the faith and are worse than unbelievers. Now, that's a strong denunciation, isn't it? Worse than unbelievers. What could be worse than an unbeliever? A man who has a family and doesn't see to it that that family is properly cared for on the material level, physically having proper food and proper clothing and proper shelter. Now, we understand, do we not, men, that if we have any capacity for making money, God is the one who has given us such capacity. It is He who gives us the power to make wealth, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8 says. So we can't take credit for all that. We always defer to God. And this is one of the ways that we can really raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Letting them know that we delight in providing for them because we are simply channels of provision from our Lord to them. So, the Apostle Paul, who was by trade a tent maker, when he went to the church in Thessalonica, He went there really to establish the church, and the church flourished in a very short period of time. In writing to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, You know that we, talking of him and his team of church planters, you know that we worked night and day so that we would not be a burden to you. They labored with their hands, probably tent-making, And they did that so that those new believers would not feel called to take care of them. Paul was in the habit, whenever and wherever possible, to support himself so he would not be a burden to the churches whom he served. That should be true of you and me in our own homes, men. Work so as to provide for your family. Deny yourself certain extras if it means that you can minister to your children and to your wife in a way that will bless them as you are God's representative for that purpose in your home. We read from Second Kings earlier about a widow. She was bereft of her husband, and not only was she left a widow, but her two children, two boys probably, two boys who were still before teenage years, probably, according to the word which is used in the Hebrew language there. These boys were left without a dad, and their dad probably had died relatively young, and without any kind of warning, he just died. We don't know the nature of his death. We know he was a prophet, and we know he's a man who feared God. And we would believe, as a result of that, that he took care of his family while he was alive. But he had not thought ahead very far because he had a creditor. He had a debt that he left his wife with. There was no collateral to pay off the debt. And the result was that these two children 
were on the brink of becoming slaves of the creditor. And all of a sudden, Elisha shows up and it ends up well, doesn't it? This story ends up beautifully, how God provided. But here's a point for us men. We need not put our wives and our children in jeopardy by leaving them without some kind of help in the event that we do die prematurely. Now, let me be clear. Nobody ever dies prematurely. Everyone dies right on time. There's a time to be born, the Bible says, and a time to die. There's a time appointed for every man, woman, boy, and girl to die. We will stand before God and give an answer to our lives. We don't know when that's going to be. But fathers, please take heed. Make this sacrifice for your children. Now, I'm no salesman here today, but I am an encourager. You can buy, every man in this room can afford to buy some life insurance that's term life. It doesn't cost much money. In 10-year increments, you can buy it. Every 10 years, you have to go and get re-examined to get another deal, and it keeps going up. But look, it's nothing compared to the money that you might be spending on some hobby that is a legitimate hobby, and there's nothing wrong with hobbies, provided that those hobbies do not keep you from taking care of your family in the event of your death. So be warned, men. Be encouraged that if you're going to be a successful father, what are you going to be willing to do to make sacrifices for your children, according to the example of the Apostle Paul? You're going to work hard in order to provide for your family. Let's remember what Jesus said in the parable of the talents. Isn't that a great parable? One man was given five, one, two, one, one. And the one who received one felt sorry for himself. What did he do? He took that talent and he buried it and just sold up and felt sorry for himself the whole time. When the master came back, he asked what he had done. He told him what he had done. And the master was not happy. The master's representative of God, of course. He was not happy with the irresponsibility that this man demonstrated as it regards the talent which the master had put in his possession to be a steward of. When the master spoke of this man, and Jesus speaks of this man, he calls him a wicked, lazy servant. Wicked, lazy servant. Men, if I'm understanding what Jesus says there correctly, he's saying that laziness is the equivalent of wickedness. We don't usually associate laziness with wickedness, do we? But Jesus certainly did. So let's be men who work hard to take care of our families. Be that kind of father. Here's the second principle that we see in the passage. Let's just go ahead and read beginning in the middle of verse 12. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. In verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Just stop there for a moment. Here's the second principle for effective parenting according to God's way. If we are going to be successful fathers, we will not shame our children. Have you ever been shamed by your father? I'm sure men, many if not most of you, have been shamed by your earthly fathers. It really made you feel small, didn't it? 
And even to this day, if that has not been revolved, resolved, rather, many are still stunted emotionally, present today, stunted emotionally because of being shamed by your father. The Apostle Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Now, here's the question. Why do we shame our children? This is a problem that men have. Women have it too as mothers. But I think men, to a great extent, have it, especially as it relates to their sons. Because we as men get our sense of well-being, our sense of self-worth from what we do. Isn't that true? You can tell it by the way in which men, when they meet each other, how they get to know each other. It's not long into a conversation between two men who have just met each other before one asks the other, what do you do? Isn't that true? Not who are you, but what do you do? Isn't that interesting? Women are not inclined that way. They'll want to ask about one another's children, about the family, because women get their sense of value from who they are, not what they do. Not that the two don't overlap, task and relationship do overlap in our lives, but consequently, men, we are competitive, aren't we? And our children are viewed many times as a means to enhancing the way other people see us. Consequently, we have a tendency to shame our parents. I mean, our children as their parent. We do that. The corrective to that is to really know who we are in Christ. To know just how loved we are. In writing his first epistle, John introduces One of the chapters by saying this, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. And what does not meet our English reading eyes, if we had access to the language of the New Testament, the word translated what manner actually means otherworldly. In other words, it's something that is beyond our experience in this world. It's A love that is lavished upon us. It's an unconditional love. Now understand that unconditional love is not a check that's written so you and I can do whatever we want to do with impunity. It's not that. The Lord disciplines the one whom He loves. That's what the writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, verse 6, echoing what Solomon had written in Proverbs chapter 3. So, It's not to say that if I really love my child unconditionally, I will never correct him or her. To the contrary, if I love him or her, I am going to correct him or her because that's an expression of God's type of love. But unconditional love is this love. It's a love that is given to an individual which ensures that individual of knowing nothing will ever separate him from the love of the Father that God has given to that child, whether the child be a boy or a girl. Nothing makes a child more secure than a father who loves him or her this way. And one of the ways that fathers love their children unconditionally is they do not shame their children. Allow me to give you a test, dads, that if you would dare to take it, 
you would be able to see perhaps need for growth in this area in your life. Here's the first question. How do you feel when your child makes a mistake in public? Does it embarrass you when your child makes a mistake in public? I'm not talking about sinning here. I'm talking about a mistake. When I was a senior in high school, I was assigned the responsibility, and I didn't want to take it, and you'll see why in just a moment. I was assigned the responsibility to give an oratorical presentation before the VFW, and it was not because I was giving it before the Veterans of Foreign War chapter there in my hometown of Memphis, Tennessee. I was and still am a fan of Veterans of Foreign War. It was because I just didn't want to do it. I had a bad case of senioritis. I didn't want to add more to my plate. My plate was full with extracurricular activities, but my speech teacher insisted upon it, and she was backed up by the assistant principal, and I was backed into a corner and had to do it. Well, I presented the speech and did rather well with the presentation of the oratory, but part of this contest, a minor part, but nevertheless a part of it, was that I would have to field a question impromptu regarding the Constitution of the United States and then give a three to five minute impromptu speech about that particular question regarding our Constitution. Well, I didn't study for that part of it. I had the oratorical presentation down pat, but I just didn't study. And I was really kind of hoping I would get a real easy question that I knew something or at least I could act like I knew something and get by with well, when the question was drawn out of a hat for me, there were several contestants, probably seven or eight of us there. When, when I pulled mine out, I didn't have a clue how to begin. And I stood up in front of all these people, and I, I just kind of hem and hawed for about 30 seconds. I said, I just don't have anything to say, and sat down. And my father was in the audience. That was an embarrassing moment. If I had been my father, I would have just kind of wanted to disappear. And I walked out of there afterwards. We got to the car, and my father said, Son, you really did a good job. Well, I knew I messed up. I knew I did. But my dad didn't shame me. He could have, and he would have probably been okay to do it. I would have accepted it, but he did not do that. What is your initial verbal response to your children after they make public mistakes. Do you emphasize the development of your child's abilities more, listen carefully, than the development of their character? What do you value more, Father? How your child achieves academically, athletically, in other ways, musically? Or do you value more the character that your child demonstrates. Now, please understand, these two are not mutually exclusive, but if you had to choose one over the other, which one would you choose? I know which one is more important. I think you do too. It's character development. It is true that we should develop the skills and abilities God has given us for His glory. Do you see a man... Skilled in his work, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, he will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. God gives us talents and abilities to develop so that we can gain an audience to minister the gospel to people around us. So people will want to know, 
Why is she the way she is? Why is he the way he is? These young people, these adults are sharp. They're sharp if they're in Christ because of their character, but also the character will move toward development of ability. But where do you put your emphasis with your children, Father? How would your children answer this question if they knew there were no negative repercussions? What do you think it would be, what do you think it would take to make your father proud of you? Would you ask your kids that today? See what they say? Well, let's move on now. The first two principles. What's the first principle? The first principle is successful fathers make sacrifices for their children. The second principle is successful fathers do not shame their children. Let's read verse 14. I'm going to read the entire thing. I know we've already looked at the first part, but in order to get the flow of thought, look at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. The word admonished means to instruct you. So Paul is writing to warn and instruct his children. And so we too, parents and fathers in particular today, we should warn our children about certain behaviors that are unacceptable, as Paul did his spiritual children. Wise fathers warn their children before administering corporal discipline to them. Wise fathers set loving limitations and communicate those limitations to their children. First of all, we must be clear about what the limitations are. Isn't God clear about the limitations He sets for our lives? Certainly. He leaves nothing to the imagination as far as what He has to say. And so if we are godly fathers who are successful as a result, we're going to do the same. For instance, when your child gets old enough to leave the house unaccompanied by you and you tell your child what time to come in at night, don't say simply be in early. Early is different for you and your child. But set a specific time. As it relates to viewing television or things on the Internet, don't scold your child for watching too much TV, for instance, but set a limit on how much time and monitor that limit. And also limit the kind of viewing your child does. Let your child know. Be clear. And then tell the child why. And when the child asks you, and they do ask, do they not? They'll say, why? And you say, I told you so. That's why. (laughs) Well, that would be enough. But tell them a little bit more. Tell them why you don't think it's healthy for them to do it. Show them in the Word of God when there are things that they want to see which are inappropriate from your viewpoint as you've prayed about it. Help them to see that these things are unhealthy for them spiritually and otherwise. Thirdly, tell what consequences disobedience will bring. Don't say something like this, if you don't clean up your room, you'll be sorry. Well, they will be sorry. But tell them what the consequences of their disobedience in that or any other other number of reasons for their disobedience would be. And here's a very important one. Be consistent, especially in your follow-through. If necessary, apply the rod 
to your child. I mean, that's what the Bible says. It's not, I don't think you've got to go get on a ride, but you need to learn how to discipline your children according to the Word of God without crushing their spirits. But find a way to break their wills. Empty threats are uncharacteristic of godly fathers. Children will increase their defiance of father's authority when there is no follow-through. If you say you're going to do something to discipline your child and you don't follow through with it, you're going to get an increased amount of pushback from your child or your children. Turn with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 13. We're going to look at three verses in the book of Proverbs. There's much to be said about proper child rearing in the book of Proverbs. Among other subjects, it's a wonderful book for living. 13.24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son. If we love our children, we're not going to spare corporal discipline when it's appropriate. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, an alternate reading of that last part of verse 24 is this. He who loves his son disciplines him early. What do you think that might suggest? You start disciplining your child early, and you will save yourself early in his or her life. You will save yourself a lot of heartache later, and him or her a lot of trouble later. Start early? And you say, how early? Well, I would say as early as the child knows the difference between yes and no. And knows that he or she is misbehaving. Remember, you've got to train the child, let the child know what's okay and what's not okay. But begin to spat the child's hand when the child does things that are not right. And the child will begin to get the message. Now, it would be nice if all you ever had to do is just spat a child's hand. But most of the time, children grow and they reach a point where they continue to assert their own will over against your will. And children can be very willful, can they not? It's amazing how willful a little two- or three-year-old can be and rule the roost. They defy our authority as parents. But start early and also discipline quickly. Be careful that you don't discipline for childish behavior. There's a difference between childish behavior that is common to children at younger ages. But if children defy you, understanding that they have done wrong, then we're to to go ahead and discipline them. Turn to chapter 19 now, Proverbs. Look at what Solomon writes in Proverbs 19:18. Discipline your son, for there is hope. And some of the translations say, while there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. If we really love our children, we will discipline them lovingly and constructively. It, otherwise, we may be sending them down a pathway of destruction, not to mention our own frustration as parents when we see the children out of our house. Go to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. 
The last look in the book of Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 1, says, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Wow. It's true. So many parents have so much heartache because of a foolish son or an unwise daughter. And one of the ways that we can do our part, fathers, is to properly discipline our children when they're young. Successful fathers, if you'll go back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll read one more part of that verse that we stopped reading. He talks about, I do not write these things to make you shame, but to admonish you as beloved children. And then in verse 18, if you'll look at it, some are arrogant. Paul writes about those in the church at Corinth as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the way we are to relate to our children. We will have to, if necessary, exercise corporal discipline in our children's lives. If we love them, we will. But what would we rather do to come in a spirit of gentleness? That's our desire. Well, this text says in verse 14, again, reading it a third time, and it yields yet a third principle of successful parenting as fathers. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul was never afraid to tell those under his leadership that he loved them. Have you noticed that? He was not alone in the biblical writers. They would speak of their love for those under their leadership. My beloved children. I can think of one man, two men really, two of the more godly men I have known in the 40 years of being a pastor. Fine men. Neither of whom had a healthy relationship with their fathers and it was not the fault of the children. It was because their fathers were troubled men. One was an alcoholic. And when he would become drunk, he would rage. And he would say hurtful things to this man whom I am thinking of. And this man told me of a fishing trip that he went with on his father. He was so happy to be with his dad. He loved to go hunting and fishing with his father. And they were fishing a spillway outside a big lake in their state. And the boy, who probably at the time would have been 10, 11 years of age, did something that was appropriate for a boy to do that was a little goofy. And then his father yelled at him, You imbecile like that! And when he was telling me this story, as a man in his 40s, he was telling me this story. He said, I didn't know what the word imbecile meant. And after the day ended, and I, I got real quiet after that because I knew imbecile was not a compliment. I had enough sense to know that. We got back in the van, and we were coming home, and I turned to my dad, and I said, Dad, what does imbecile mean? It was a wound to that boy. 
that followed him into adulthood. We need to verbalize love to our sons and to our daughters, men. We need to let them know we love them. And it just sort of sticks, the words, I love you, in men's throats many times. It just sticks and can't get out of there. Do you ever have that happen to you? You may say, I'm going to tell him I love him. I'm going to tell him I love him. And you get with him and you can't tell him or her that you love him or her. I know there's some men in here who have that kind of difficulty. But go ahead and go against what you feel would be right and just tell them you love them. Write them a letter if you have a tough time saying it. After all, isn't this a letter that we're reading from this morning? Paul wrote a love letter, as it were, to the Corinthians, as contrary as they were, as rude as they were to him. In spite of the fact they'd said all kinds of negative things about him, he still wrote them a love letter. It's awesome. Write your child a letter and you say, hey, I have poor penmanship. Well, let me tell you, you can print. You say, well, I I don't have anything creative to say. Can you write, I love you? Is that hard for you to get? You can do that. Tell your children you love them. Write them two or three lines. And don't just hand the note to them. Put it in an envelope. Put a stamp on it. Mail it to your address. You say, that's wasting money. Do this and see the impact it has. Because your child receives very little personal mail these days. And that child will receive that and treasure it. You may say, well, my child's just a little baby. He can't read. She can't read. Well, send it anyway and let your wife put it into the baby book. And there'll be a time when that child can look back over that and be blessed long after you're gone, even. Well, here's a fifth principle. Let's read a little further in this passage. Verse 15, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Here's the fifth principle. Successful fathers urge their children to imitate them. You might say, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Well, do as Paul did. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? So here's the beginning point, men. In order for you to be a father who makes the biggest impact on your child, you have to commit yourself to imitate Jesus Christ. To follow Christ. That's what it means to imitate. How frequently do we hear Jesus saying, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Over and over again, He says, follow me. That means imitate me. Look at Christ. Do what Christ did. Be that kind of dad to your children. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You say, well, I have a hard time imitating Jesus. Well, try Paul on for size. This is what Paul said. Just one thing he says. In Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Make Jesus Christ the centerpiece of your life. And if you and I do that, you know what will happen? These other things will happen through us. Not without our cooperating with the Lord, thinking about it, immersing ourselves in the Word of God, learning what the Bible says. In the book of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, 
be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. Look, we are called as men to live this kind of life in our families, to lay down our lives for our children, having first laid down our lives for their mothers. We are to lay down our lives for our family. And that will look like this. If we read just a little bit before that in the book of Ephesians, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building others up according to their need, that it may benefit those who listen. Would you say that you have the habit of encouraging your children, not letting any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth? The word translated unwholesome was the word which was used to describe rotting fish. Have you ever smell rotting fish? Foul. But out of our mouths, instead of foul things coming, things which build people up. The next verse says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. We grieve the Spirit of God by letting that kind of foolishness come out of our mouths, that kind of ugly talk. And then Paul goes on to write, Get rid of all resentment. Let me stop right there. If you have anything lodged in your heart, that is a bitter thought or attitude toward another person, your wife, your parents, your boss, somebody in the church, maybe me, whatever it may be, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Because it will not only poison you, the Bible says in Hebrews 12, but all those around you. And many people in this room are held hostage by their own resentment. Get rid of all bitterness. He goes on to say, Rage and anger, brawling and slander, and all forms of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. When I am tempted to become resentful, and I am tempted often to do that, to take a hurt that has been aimed at me and internalize it. When I am tempted, I always go to Ephesians 4.32 and I begin to think how much Jesus died for me and how many more times I have been one who has offended Him, yet He has forgiven me of all my sin. And consequently, I should do that. And in so doing, what are we doing? We're modeling for our children, aren't we? When we're not teaching with direct communication, your children are watching you. They're listening to the kind of things which come out of our mouths. They're watching the way in which we relate to our wives. They're watching the way that we relate to our bosses. They're watching all this and they're taking it in. Some of it's going in intuitively. It's seeking into their, sinking into their consciousness, subconscious lives. Please understand this. We are to imitate Christ. And a person who imitates Christ is safe in encouraging his children to follow Jesus. They will want to follow Jesus. Is there a guarantee that if we imitate Christ, our children are going to do the same? There's not a guarantee, a total guarantee. And I'll give you an illustration of this. I would say, I don't know how to put a percentage upon it, but I'd say probably 95% 
of children who have a dad who really imitate Jesus, they're going to want to imitate Jesus too. But there are those outliers, if you will. I'll give you this example from the prophet Samuel's life. He was a man of God. The Bible says, the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. Can you imagine? Everything this man said counted. And he had two sons, Joel and Abijah. He appointed them judges in Israel. And do you know the Bible says they did not walk in his ways. They became men who used the office for graft to gain riches. They cheated the people in the distribution of those things. Well, let's look at a sixth principle. Not only will a successful father urge his children to imitate them, him rather, as a father, but also he will introduce his children to positive role models. Look at verse 17. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Hey, guys, surround yourself with some godly guys. Guys who are not perfect, but men who are really pursuing the Lord. And do some things with your sons and daughters, with that man and his family. Do some things with them. So those men can have influence. There are a lot of older men in our church whose children are out. And those men probably would enjoy hanging out with somebody with some younger children every once in a while and doing some things with them. And just let those children watch these more godly men, older men, as they live their lives and as they'll minister to those children. Timothy is described in this passage as a man who was faithful in the Lord. Another way that we can introduce our children to positive role models is through good literature. There are lots of excellent biographies of people that you can place in the hands of your kids. I'm fond of sports. Uh, That's no surprise. Uh, Many of you thought I wouldn't get this far into the message without talking about sports. But what I have found to be very helpful... The Fellowship of Christian Athletes has a magazine. I don't know if it comes out monthly, probably bi-monthly. It's an excellent magazine. It always features prominent athletes professionally and collegiately and some high school students who have a strong testimony for the Lord. And the variety of sporting events or types of sports is very wide in its range. So I love to get those and hand those things to young men and to young ladies And encourage them. You can do that with your child. It'll pay off for your child. There are probably other areas besides sports, music and art and other things. Put good literature in your children's hands and talk with them about it. Read it to them when they're younger. Be careful not to introduce them to negative role models through movies you bring into your house, cable events that are not fit for anybody to watch. Be careful, men. Well, here's the last principle. And this is not in this passage, but it's in the writings of Paul. In Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians, there are prayers which the apostle prays. He was a praying man, wasn't he? And 
we must be praying men if we're going to have the influence. Let me give you one prayer and try to explain to you how to do this. It's pretty simple and it would be easy for you to see, I think. In Philippians chapter 1, I think it's verses 9 through 11, Paul says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you'll be able to discern, you'll have discernment, and you'll be pure and blameless, that until the day of Christ, when Christ comes, you'll be presented to Him in a very healthy way to be a person who is born fruit, fruit born of righteousness by Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. So where you see that prayer, you can insert your child's name. My prayer for you is that you will abound in love and that you will be a person who bears fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Just put your child's name in there and pray it. And there are several prayers. In the book of Ephesians, there are two excellent prayers. In the book of Colossians, there's at least one more prayer. And this is a way we can pray God's will for our children. And we know if we pray for them in such a manner, they are going to have the opportunity to become those people. It's going to happen because of God's grace. It's wonderful to be a father. Sometimes it's a real bummer, but probably about nine times out of ten, it's good, isn't it, men? What a pleasure. And what does God do in our lives to our children when they don't behave the way we think they ought to? Well, I'll tell you what He's done in my life. He's humbled me big time when my kids don't behave the way I want them to. But God is a sovereign God, and He loves you as a father. He will empower you to be all that He created you to be so that you, in turn, can be used to help your children to become who they are intended to be. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? If you're a dad here, and you say, Mike, I want to be this kind of father. And you don't have to say it to me. Say it to the Lord. Say, Lord, I want to be this kind of father. I can't do it. And those are the first words the Lord wants to hear. I can't do it. And He will say, I know it, but I can do it through you. Would you just say that, Dad, to the Lord right now? Lord, please be this kind of Father through me. Please give me the power, the insight. Give it to me, Lord, so that I can raise my children to honor you so that the kingdom of God may grow through people like me and my family. Lord, we thank you for the family. We thank you for creating men male and female for the purpose of procreation so that we can have children, we can invest in our children, and we can invest that which lasts forever in them, the Word of God, so that they can become young men and young women who perpetuate this cycle. And there will be this great proliferation on the earth of godly families that will change the landscape of the world. 
we plead with you, Lord, for this. In Jesus' name, amen.